0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, June the 11th, 2012. This is episode 919, and it's Monday. Instead of Friday, 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 it's Monday. Monday kind of sucks for some people. I, I don't really care what day of the week it is. I actually... Yeah, I have some of my own Monday doldrums as well, because I spent all weekend working in the garden and everything, and like, do have to come into the office and answer emails and do a show, but I actually love doing that, but still, you gotta, you gotta get out of, you know, you gotta get up out of that mode you had all weekend long, where you were just doing whatever you felt like, whenever you felt like. If you had a weekend like that, not everybody has weekends like that. I did this weekend, so it was a little tough coming in. Uh, but I'll tell you what, today's gonna be cool because it's listener feedback day. Monday is the day that you send me your emails, you send them to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com and you put article for Jack, story for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack, something like that in the subject line and then I see it and then I go through about four or five hundred of them a week and I end up with about ten or twelve that I cover. Usually the 10 that I tw- you know of the ten or twelve that I cover, four or five of them are stories that came in from like a whole ton of people. And that's why I covered them. But I also try to, you know, blend in five or six that are just, you know, random questions that came in from one person, and try to keep things varied for you guys. Uh, I can't get them all on the air, obviously, but I do read them all. So please keep them coming. Uh, next, uh, let's go ahead before we uh, get into that though, and uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today: Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Uh, Safe Castle was the first company ever stepped up and said, you know what, Jack, we love what you're doing, we're going to sponsor you. That was over three years ago, and I don't think they'll be leaving anytime time soon. Uh, they've actually committed to long-term support of the show, and uh, I think we'll have them around for a long time. And that's great, because they have all kinds of great stuff. They have great pricing, emergency food storage stuff, tactical stuff, hunting stuff, you name it, they've got it. Safe Castle Royal, check them out today. Their website is actually prepared. Dot, pro, dot, P-R-O, not dot com Prepare dot pro. And the best way to make sure you're uh visiting Safecastle's website and uh not some brand pirate because they're out there, go to my site, the click on the banners first, and that way you'll know you're dealing with someone that actually carries my personal endorsement. Next up today, backyardfoodproduction.com. Uh, I'll tell you what, you're gonna hear some things today about the economy that you're not gonna like. And I want you to realize something. Whenever I watch stuff about reclaiming desert land in these really harsh environments and all where people have been living with almost nothing and now they have the ability to produce their own food, there's a word that always comes out. It usually has to be translated because it's somebody in Ethiopia or China or, or somewhere like that. But the word that always gets translated out of every person's mouth no matter where they from, are from is food security. Because it is the most fundamental need we have, the ability to feed ourselves and give ourselves clean water. And if we have those two things, we can pretty much sort everything out. It is important at this time that we start to take responsibility for feeding ourselves and, and to have food production systems distributed throughout the country, not just on mega farms. And that means it's up to each one of us. And there's not a lot of things that we can really do something about in the world today, we can't fix the fact that I'm going to tell you today that, that Providence is going bankrupt and cutting pensions. Fort in California is, is is probably next on, on the you know list for bankruptcy. Yeah, when I talk about them, I'll tell you that they got their city hall repossessed by, by Wells Fargo. All right, so we can't fix that. We can fix the fact that our backyards are full of Bermuda grass and Raleigh-St. Augustine and offer us no food in return for lots of work and lots of inputs and lots of money. And the best way I know to do that, get over to backyardfoodproduction.com Get Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD and learn how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Check them out today, backyardfoodproduction.com. Next up, uh, I did uh, get quite a few emails in for people looking for the free military membership. Uh, there's three of them going to be given out. You'll get a notice in the mail today if you've won. But at this point, uh, entries are closed. I did run a sale last week. Not many people took advantage of it. It was kind of an afterthought. Uh, but it does run through today. So if you're listening today and you've been wanting to join the MSB, you can join your first year for 40 instead of $50. The discount code is 10 off One zero off All lowercase one zero o f f at uh, checkout. If you want to pay by uh, mail for the Member Support Brigade, you can of course write it on the form, and we'll honor the discount. I want to remind you: there's always a discount on the Member Support Brigade. Always, you can get Member Support Brigade for about twenty eight dollars a year right now, and you can buy as many years as you want. I'm serious, but you have to pay in silver: an ounce of silver or a dollar and a dollar and fifty cents in pre sixty four coinage. Uh, nickels or not nickels? No, don't send me 364 nickels, guys. Okay, I made a mistake there. Dimes, quarters, fifty cent piece, silver dollars, a dollar fifty, or one ounce of of, of silver bullion per year. Send it in the mail. Make sure you package it so you, people can't tell what's in there. We've had some of it stolen out of the mail. It's sad but true. All right, with that, I've got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up today. Oh, on the on the thing with uh, beekeepers, uh, two different people submitted forms, and we're going to get them booked this week for shows on beekeeping. We'll spread them out a bit. I'm sure they'll have different takes on it. Uh, but i also got some other people send me, hey, why don't you contact this guy? Why don't you contact that guy? Guys, I'm going to tell you the best way to get people on this show as a guest is for you, the audience... To say, hey, look, I love listening to this guy, and I love what you're doing, I'd love to hear you on his show. If you want to be on his show, go here and throw in numbers like, hey, 40,000 people a day listen. That is going to be more likely to get them on the show than me approaching them. It really does work better, and it seems to create a very synergistic relationship with the guest when somebody from the audience reaches out. So just a thought there. Anyway, so let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, of course everybody's all a Twitter and all a buzz and all a Facebook and all upset and angry about the first story I'm going to cover today, to get it out of the way. Rand Paul endorsed Rip uh, Mitt Romney. And on the surface, I say, so what? Big flipping deal. I do not care. And I think the people that are out there gnashing their teeth and wrenching their hands and they want, you know, they're, you know, having witchcraft ceremonies, dedicating Rand Paul to Satan or whatever, or whatever extreme that people are going to, as upset as they are, is understandable, but foolish. Rand Paul is not Ron Paul. Rand Paul is not Ron Paul. One more time, just for the people that don't understand it, Rand Paul is not Ron Paul. He's his son. And he's no more Ron Paul than Michael Reagan is Ronald Reagan. They share a lot of common ideals, but they each do their own thing. And on the surface, I say I do not care. So a Republican senator endorsed a Republican governor at a point where we know that Republican governor is going to get the nomination. Big, flipping deal. Now, if Rand had been in lockstep with his father on every political issue up till now, I think it would be a bigger deal. In other words, Rand is very much an aggressive person when it comes to foreign policy. He's very hawkish. Uh, he, you know, He's all for the military-industrial complex, always has been. He and Ron differ there, and apparently they can figure it out between father and son and get over it. So maybe we should too. That doesn't mean that Rand, out of all of the people that are serving in the Senate, isn't probably one of the best we have, but he's still a politician. Okay. So on the surface, I say I don't care. I really don't. Now, digging deeper. Putting on my thinking cap and saying what possibly could be at play here. Some people think this is so Rand can get the VP nomination. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Mitt Romney is going to let Rand Paul anywhere near his run for president. I think that Rand comes with a bunch of Ron's baggage from the media, and the media will go out and do even more, tenfold more than they're already going to do to try to slay Romney. Uh, to keep their boy in, in, in office because, you know, they got to support the Democrat no matter who he is. If the Democrat was a yellow Labrador retriever, the mainstream media is going to support the Democrat as though there's a difference. Though, like, like, like I said, I could care less which one of these two clowns uh, are our next president. It isn't going to make a bit of difference. And those of you that think it is, I'm sorry. It's not. It's not. It really isn't. Um I keep getting emails from people saying, but 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 they're going to be appointing judges, and Romney will appoint more pro-gun judges based on what? Based on his stellar record of supporting the Second Amendment, like supporting the assault weapons ban, like all the statements he's made. I mean, there's just nothing there, guys. I'm so, I wish there was. So that's not it. It's not it's not Rand becoming uh, VP. Uh, some people have theorized that maybe this is a, a deal to get Ron in charge. Of you know, uh, Federal Reserve making Chairman of the Federal Reserve, so he could get rid of it or do something like that. Not going to happen. Ron and Rand will be nowhere near the Romney uh, presidency if he wins, and the real Romney campaign, which will kick off in earnest after the convention, nowhere near. Which leaves us one place that they'll overlap. So here's my theory: Ron Paul gets to speak at the Republican National Convention. Ron Paul gets to give his view of liberty and smaller government without an endorsement of Romney at the convention. Ron Paul gets to be heard. Ron Paul gets to stand up and present to the entire Republican Party without being slandered, without being bashed, without being sidelined at the biggest event of the party in history. And that's the deal. That's my guess. And it's just a guess I don't have any insider information, but here's how I think that plays out. Paul has a ton of delegates in his pocket, but nowhere near enough to win. There's a lot of what they say undecided delegates and things like that where there could be a brokered convention. It isn't going to work out. It isn't going to happen. Ron and Rand are both smart enough to do math, and it isn't going to work. It, It can't work mathematically. It just can't. Okay. And they both know that. So the goal in trying to force a, 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 a brokered convention for, the, for, for, for Ron Paul has always been about the message not winning. Now, when you're running for office, you can't say it that way because you have to keep your base motivated to believe there's some way you can pull it off. But again, if you can do math, it doesn't work out. But what could happen... A big, fat, hairy deal with a lot of barking and yelling and and, and, and confrontation and possibly some level of a brokered convention. Not enough to get Ron the nomination, but enough to put leverage on to get Ron's message out at the convention instead of him being completely sidelined. Okay? Because you don't bring the guy up to talk who lost and doesn't like the guy who won. It just doesn't happen, unless you have leverage. So the leverage could be, well, we'll have Rand pull this back a little bit, pull this back, this this, this fever back a little bit, and we'll calm down our troops, and you give me a platform, and you let me speak. Unencumbered, unrebutted to, you give me my 30 minutes to lay out my vision of what the country should be doing in spite of the fact that much of it will be in direct conflict to what you're doing, I agree not to attack you, but I also agree that I don't have to say, hey, let's get on board and support uh, Romney. That's that's the best way I can sort this out. And would I fault Rand for doing what he did in that scenario? No, because in the first place I said, so what? I have always seen Rand Paul as a decent guy, but a politician. He's not his father. I've never expected him to be his father. Uh, I don't have any illusions that he would ever be his father. And I don't think we get another guy like Ron for a long time in the political sphere. Because I think most people like Ron don't want to be in politics. They don't want to be in charge. They don't want to be in control. And the system does a very good job of taking good people and destroying them. And, and, And putting them into a position where they have to make deals... Because once they compromise once, that gets held over their head, and then they compromise again, and then that gets held over their head. And pretty soon, all of your enemies have a whole bunch of crap they can drop about you at any time, and you have it about them. And it's like a nuclear stalemate. That's what our freaking government has become. So people that go into that have to never, ever, ever compromise in their personal life or their political life. They have to be 100% all the time. And those people are rare. And as as much as I think Rand is a decent guy, he's not one of them. He's not his father. He's not that guy that doesn't compromise. And because of that, he's the perfect person to put in the middle of this to make this work. So it's just a guess. Um, But here's my question for all the Ron Paul supporters uh, out there, and I'm among you but the fervent ones, the ones that somebody puts a a post up on Dig that's about a freaking Dilbert cartoon, and also the guys in there going, Ron Paul 2012 in the comments section. You're like, come on, dude, those people. Will you now, and I don't want anybody to be offended by this, so please let me clarify it after I say it. Will you now grow up? Will you now grow up? Here's what I mean. When we're kids, we're told fairy tale stories and other stories where the good guy always wins, right? The the guy in the white hat's always the good guy. The boy always gets the girl. We're told these wonderful stories that aren't quite reality, but they're what reality can be. And they're necessary for children to grow up with a positive attitude so that they can believe in something really genuinely good. So even though they're going to run into many situations where it's not going to work out right, They'll keep trying for it. They'll keep striving for it. And they'll believe in it enough to try to build it into their own lives, even if their neighbor doesn't. Okay. So will the Ron Paul supporter now understand that you are the answer? Ron is not the answer. Ron is an example. Ron is an example. He'd make a great president. I can't think of anybody in the political spectrum at any level right now who would make a better president than Ron Paul, but even a president Ron Paul isn't going to be able to fix everything. It just he just isn't. Even a president Ron Paul isn't going to be able to, to do as much as he would like to do unless he had the Congress and the Senate to go along with him, which even if we got a Ron Paul by some miracle at presidency, where's where's you know, show me the, the congressional ballots and the senatorial ballots that are going to get me a Senate and a Congress that are going to play ball. In a libertarian mindset. So so that's not going to happen. So it, it it goes back to the concept that Ron Paul's revolution is about you. Right? When I did the if I wanted to save America speech, what did I tell you? The solutions are not in the halls of government. They're in your own backyard. So will the people, not all Ron Paul supporters, but the people that have believed in Ron Paul. With a religious, zealot-like fervor, will you now understand that it's more about you than him? Because if it's only about him, he's an older gentleman, and we're going to only have him for so much longer, and his political career is over, he's done. He said he's done, and I believe him. I don't think this will be like a Garth Brooks, I'm retiring, I'm back, I'm retiring again, I'm back. I don't think it will be like that, right? You know, like, it won't be like the Eagles reunion tour. It's our last one. No, this is our last one. No, this is our last You know, when they ran out of money or whatever. It's not going to be that way. He's done running for office. And I think it's a good thing because I think he's served long enough. But I also am kind of excited because without the pinnings of politics, I think Ron will become something even more now. And I think it's time for us all to start working outside of, outside of the system and looking into ourselves, and not really caring what they do on Capitol Hill, other than when we're trying to put the brakes on something. That's the only time we really need to... When they're doing something that's really, really bad, and we can step in and stop it, that's it. The only goal out of all of us at the federal level right now should be hindrance. Absolute hindrance. Slowing and stopping things. Anybody trying to get something done is part of the problem right now. If you're trying to do stuff... Right Everything at the, at the federal level should be at stop or deconstruct. So if you're tr- what you're trying to do is reduce, that's okay. But anybody trying to put more in, you're part of the problem. It's too big. So it doesn't matter if what you want to do is a good thing, quote unquote. It's still more and more is too much right now. If we start talking about some of the economic things going on out there um, today, you, you know we can reinforce that again. but that's that's my challenge now. For the person that in every single YouTube video you've ever watched that was about politics just commented, Ron Paul, 2012, will you now see that you are the answer? Not Ron. Ron is an example and a damn fine one. Now, what we need are thousands or, dare I say, millions of Americans to stand up and be that example outside the system in your daily lives. And don't be so concerned about what Rand Paul does or does not do. If he's your senator, then you can be concerned about it. For me, I live in the South. Rand lives in the South, but not quite far South as I do. He's not on my ballot. What he does, unless he really does something wrong, you know, like get behind soap or Pippa, and let's not forget that he's resisted things like that for us. Until he does something like that, I really don't care what he does. Because my focus is on me and my family and my local community. Because that's where the big focus needs to be. Now, I want to say one thing. I've been asked, is there any reason at all you could give a person for voting for Mitt Romney over over, uh, Barack Obama? And I can. I can give you one. It isn't because Romney's better in any way, shape, or form. The only reason I could give you would be the same reason I would give you to vote for whoever is running against anybody at all times. Disruption of continuity. The one thing that a vote for Romney would do would be deconstruct the Obama cabinet and make Romney have to start over. He's not gonna keep Barack's guys. Right? So they're gonna be they're not gonna be much better. But they're gonna have to start over. So you're gonna so that that's if you want if you wanted me to say why you could justify voting for one clown over the other in this federal election this year, that's it. Disruption of continuity. And that is the only one. And anybody that wants to make the Supreme Court argument with me, you're gonna try to do it on guns. I want you to point to very pro-gun statements by Romney. right? I want to see some. I haven't seen any. I've seen some tacit ones because I need to get elected now and I have an R after my name. But I can show you a, a laundry list of negative ones. If you're going to point to right-to-life, pro-choice, it ain't coming back to the Supreme Court. It ain't coming back to the Supreme Court. It ain't coming back. It's a political third rail designed to distract you from what's really going on. No matter what side of the issue you're on, it's not coming back to the Supreme Court. What the president thinks about that issue may say something about his moral character depending on how you view it, okay? But it's not going to make a legislative hill of beans of difference at all. So show me, if you want to make that, or you got to show me where. Anyway, I'm done with it. Like I said, for the people that think the answer is in Washington, whether it's through Rand and Ron Paul or through Mitt Romney or through Barack Obama, I think it's time we all collectively grew up and realized the answer's within Alright, going on. Um, apparently the people at the Wall Street Journal and some economic think tanks and all have figured out something. They've had to work on this a really long time to figure this out. They've had to run studies, and, uh, some studies were more conclusive than others, but when they basically ran all the numbers, here's what they figured out. They figured out that if you provide student loans and student aid, the cost of education goes up. Yep. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, It it took a lot of work. Let me read a little bit to you. This again is uh, on WSJ.com by Josh Mitchell. Uh, Rising student debt levels and fresh academic academic research have brought greater scrutiny to the question of whether the federal government's expanding student aid programs are driving up college tuition. Studies of the relationship between increasing aid and climbing prices at non-profit four-year college found mixed results, ranging from no link to a strong causal connection. Trust me, it's there, guys. But fresh fresh academic research, right? They needed academic research to figure this out. Supports the idea that student aid in the form of grants leads to higher prices for all for-profit schools, a small segment of post-secondary education. A new study found that tuition at for-profit schools where students receive federal aid was 75% higher than at comparable for-profit schools whose students don't receive any aid. 75% higher. Okay, look, I'm not even going to read any more of this article, and I'm going to tell you why. It's all utter freaking nonsense that anybody would even question this. Let me explain to you Economics 101. When people have more access to money, they spend more money, and due to that, they're willing to pay more for the same item. It doesn't matter if it's a college degree or a, a Porsche. It doesn't matter. Let's put it to you this way. What do you think the median home price in America would be if you couldn't get a mortgage to buy a house? If you had to save your money to buy a house? Do you think that we could have a three bedroom, two bath, you know, typical suburban quarter acre lot selling for about $60,000? I do. I think that would be just about where it would be. If there was no such thing as you could not get a mortgage. There were, the mortgage is outlawed. Well, first of all, the current economic system would collapse. You understand that? Because they wouldn't be able to make all the money with fractional reserves. The Federal Reserve would really have to increase the monetary base since the banks couldn't expand it anymore. So there'd be less money, period. Right? But this currency then might be more stable, and it might hold its value, and it might lose less to inflation. And then people would have to say, okay, let's see. I make forty thousand dollars a year. Okay, I'm going to end up giving the government about ten thousand dollars of that by the time it's all said and done with over a year. That leaves me thirty. If I live on twenty, which sucks, but I can do it for six years. And think of this: everything else would cost less, so the twenty would go a lot further. And I save ten thousand dollars a year for six years. I can buy a house. The average person that starts working at 24 is then buying a house by 30. The person that starts working at 18 and starts saving when they're a teenager, they're able to buy a house by about 25. Hmm. And when they buy that house, they own it free and clear so the bank can never take it away. But what happens when mortgages come? What happens when people can borrow money to buy a house? What happens to the price of houses? It goes up. Let's look at it another way. Let's say that, that there was no such thing, you could not get a loan to buy a car. You had to buy a new car for cash, a used car for cash. First of all, there'd be a lot more used cars around. But what do you think a new car, a new car that today sells for 35000 dollars would sell for? Now remember, if I want a house, <laughs> if I want a house, I gotta save ten grand a year for six years to buy a median. So I I mean, am I gonna pay half as much as a house for a car? If I have to pay cash for it, not if I have a freaking brain in, in my head versus one in my ass, I am not. So what do you think a car is going to sell for, Ten, fifteen thousand dollars 15000 Maybe. I bet you'd have new cars. If you couldn't get a car loan, if magically tomorrow all this lending stopped and the only people that could borrow money were business owners to fund their payroll cycles on a, on a, on a revolving credit basis and there was no financing of any of this stuff, right? Right. I guarantee you that the prices of everything would drop dramatically and we would probably end up with a much more stable currency. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be... I mean, right now if you did it. Right now if you did it, you would destroy the entire economy. But if the economy was built that way in the first place, it really would be much more stable than it is. So when we make things available through easy credit or a welfare program, the price of goods go up. So only a complete dumbass... Would think that education is, is like somehow not part of that economic theory. I mean, you have to be stupid, but these people believe it and I'll tell you why. Cause it's college. Oh, it's wonderful. It enhances like people should go. People have a right to college. Everybody should go to college because of this stupidity. These people actually would think for a second that this doesn't apply. And I'm going to tell you what, the nonprofit public education schools, there's a lot of profit in those schools. There's a lot of money in those schools. And they are having their tuition fueled by it. Because what would be the comparison? You'd have to have a nonprofit school that's large enough to be a case study against all the existing ones where no aid was allowed. It doesn't exist. So what are they comparing it to when they say there's no relationship between it? What they're saying is, well, um, okay, here's how it works. like The only reason the tuition's going up is the cost of doing business is going up because we have to give teachers raises and pay teacher pensions and build buildings and have libraries and upgrade our computer and we have to have track and field events and a football team and all this stuff costs money and as the cost of everything goes up so must the, the tuition so we're only raising tuition to keep pace with expenses, but why do all of those Expenses go up due to inflation. Where does that all come from? Lending and borrowing and interest. Additionally, here's the thing: if you didn't you couldn't go to school, you couldn't go with a loan, you couldn't go get forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars and come out of freaking school four or five years later with a degree in communications. If you couldn't do that, if that didn't happen, then any institute of higher learning would have to come down and meet what people were willing and able to pay. And let me tell you something, what people are willing to pay is much lower when you must pay it out of pocket than when you can finance it for X dollars a month. And you're not even worried about that because you're going to go to school for six freaking years and you're not going to make your first payment for seven years. And when you're, you're 17 and everybody in your life has told you, just go, Johnny, it'll pay off, right? You'll just, oh, okay, Okay, 12500 a year, no problem. <laughs> You'd see a lot of colleges charging four and $5,000 a year. Why? Because a kid working as a waiter can go to school and pay for that. And guess what? You could make money teaching that way. But the whole system is rigged due to the money that's dumped into it. The whole thing is, is it, it's, it's an educ You know they talk about military-industrial complex? It's a student-loan industrial-college complex. It's, it's what it is. It is a, a complete pyramid scheme. And sooner or later, this too shall crash. You know, they say this too shall pass. Well, there's this another Jackism for you. This too shall crash. This thing will come apart at the seams. It will break down. More and more kids are getting out, owing more and more money, and they will figure out ways to... They'll be, I'll tell you what's going to happen. People will flee the country to avoid student loan debt. That'll start happening in the next 10 years. In large numbers. And some country out there, some country out there will say, you know what? These kids in America are a little bit spoiled. Indeed, they are. But they do have a good education. And if they're willing to come here and flee their own countries, then they're willing to do something. And they're willing to do some stuff. And they'll probably work pretty cheap. And some country out there will open its doors, will come up with some kind of escape program for American refugees. You think it's crazy? Yeah, wait. Wait till you got these kids running around owing oh, sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars that their government will extract from them for the rest of their lives. They'll garnish their Social Security wages to make sure it's paid back. After they've already printed money and paid the lender back, they'll still make them pay it back. And see if some of those some of those kids don't leave and see if some enterprising country out there doesn't go, you know, we could take in ten thousand people a year like this. Yeah. We'll, we'll have you'll have to come in under some kind of job program or something like this, and we'll issue them, we'll, we'll give them citizenship, and see if they, see if it doesn't happen. I'm just saying, and, and and this will be the cause. This will be one of the catalysts as you start to see people go the other direction from this country. It's already happening a little bit, and when things happen a little bit, it's usually the case that eventually they happen a lot. It's one of the easy ways to forecast trends. When something starts to happen a little bit, it's only a matter of time until down the pike comes the the, the big load of it. All right, let's take another one here. So I got an email that I'm just going to answer really, really quick, really, really short. The person wanted to know, what do I think about regular pasteurized milk from the store? You go to the store and you just buy regular old milk. Is it safe and is it healthy? Is it safe? Yes. It's absolutely safe. It's completely sterilized. That's what pasteurization does. It's not going to... In of itself, it's not going to harm you. Now, uh, my big problem with milk is RGBH, the recombin growth growth hormone, right? Uh, And if if, if pasteurized milk, if normal everyday milk didn't have RBGH in it, um, I would probably not give a damn about it. I, I would probably not really worry that much about it. Cattle are not like chickens in the way that they can be handled if you want milk from them. If you make cows completely miserable, you will not get any milk. So cattle have to be fairly decently cared for. Now, there's other things, like there's basically pus in milk, and there's a standard for how much pus is allowed. Some of it is a natural thing, uh, which is, and, and some of it is from, from, from problems created by the, the dairy operations themselves. But overall, by the time you pasteurize it, it's it's, it's okay. It's this growth hormone in it. So this is why if I need to buy milk or cream or butter or any dairy product from a store, it's one of the places where I always go organic and eggs as well. I try to get as much locally as I can without even going there. But, you know, I just I can't do it every week, Uh, especially with, you know, and I don't drink a lot of milk, so this is not one of my hot button personal issues. I need enough cream to, to use for my coffee. And, and I use butter when I cook, and I you know I cook with eggs once in a while, and I get local eggs, and I also do buy organic eggs from the store. I would tell you this. When you look at your life and trying to live healthier with going to the grocery store, and that's going to be something most of us are going to continue to do. We're not all going to be able to find CSAs and get 100% of our food locally grown. It would be great if we could. There's just not enough supply to do that right now, and it's expensive. So there's there's a you know a reality check against it. But those three areas... Are the most cost-effective places that you can make a significant change and eat healthier. Milk, butter, eggs go organic, mainly because if it's not, it's likely that you've got this freaking growth hormone in there. And I think a lot of the problems in our children are directly tied back to this freaking growth hormone. We should not be consuming anything that contains a growth hormone given to a cow to make it give more milk. And and and, and the fact that it's it's you know everywhere. And, and and you know that if you produce milk, and you don't use this crap, but you're not organic, you can't call your milk non-RBGH milk? That the Monsanto sued over that and said it would damage them? Well, that's the point now, isn't it? I, I think it's, re- it's one thing, There's I'd like to see some stuff labeled to say contains GMOs, I'd love to see that passed. I really would. I don't want anybody to stop it, I just want people to know. Because I believe that if the market really knew the market would fix it, but the market's too busy being stupid trying to pay all of its student loan debts that it got for the job that it can't have, that it doesn't have, right? So I believe that in that case that would be helpful. Um, but I, I, I really think that, so again, it's not that the pasteurization is the problem, it's that this growth hormone is the problem, but I really think we've gone into a, a, a complete tyranny When a person selling milk that doesn't contain something, can't put on the label, doesn't contain this thing that people are actually concerned about. Uh, It's insane on its face. The only way you can be sure that you are going RGBH free is to use an organic product. At least for now, we are working on something about that, as many of you know. Let's take another one. Okay, the, The other big story this weekend has been Europe. Europe, Europe, Europe. Bailout, bailout, bailout. Spain got a bailout. 100 billion euros. 100 billion euros. 100 billion euros, which is uh, about $124 billion as the euro slips against the dollar. Um, And there's a lot of people saying, well, it's not going to work. It's going to be short-lived. It's not enough. But I think the bigger story here, and I, I just... Guys, you, you got to start really seeing the bigger picture. And it ties in with a, an email somebody sent uh, me, call, called Denninger. I uh, was saying that he thinks it'll be about two months until it all comes crashing down. He wants to hear my thoughts on that. And, of course, he's talking about the Eurozone as well. So Denninger has come out. That's Ticker guy, for those that don't know him. Very switched on guy financially, but he says two months and it's all over. I'm going to tell you something about Denninger. I like the guy. I respect the guy. But his timelines are shit. All right, Because he did three posts, three posts last year that I know of, just the ones I know of that said, basically, it's over, it's going to happen right now, and it didn't, and it's not going to again. Let me tell you something about Spain and Italy and Greece and this Eurozone crap. They will pump a trillion euros into the banks to recapitalize them to try to save the thing. It will only be... When the nations themselves decide, I've had enough, and exit the euro. It will not happen because it will fall apart. It will happen because the countries will finally look at their books, and they'll see that the only way out is to go back to the drachma, or, or whatever, right? Or the lira, or what's the peseta, right? They, these countries will eventually go back to their own currencies, and they'll exit the eurozone, and they will immediately devalue their own currency by printing money, and then they will use the money to pay off the old debt through devaluation, which is exactly what happened in Central and South America in the 80s and 90s, Argentina, Chile, etc. All right, And this is what people don't understand. All of those nations down in Central and South America had their currency pegged to the dollar. So they didn't have a, 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 a Spanish zone or a, a Latin America zone or a South America zone or South Amero zone to exit, but they really did because they, had this, they all had this dollar pegging going on. And all they did was just take their currency off of the peg to the dollar and leave the dollar stability and let their currency go and actually didn't even let it go and let it float. They purposely devalued it. At about a a typical 4 to 1 ratio, which devalued their debt by about 75% and made it possible for them to repay their debt and screw over their creditors. Yes, yes, because their creditors got paid back with much, much devalued money, but they paid their bills. And then the market punished them because the market, if you devalue your currency, the market will go, okay, guess what? We're going to devalue it more. So the market then devalued them further. So it went past what they needed to get out, but that was their only way to get out. And then they basically burn it to the ground, and then they start rebuilding from scratch. So you look over at Europe, and you say, "Well, they they don't have that there. They're in this 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 conglomeration thing, this eurozone, this euro currency, right?" Yeah, they can't. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Basically, right now, the euro is pegged to the mark, the German mark. It doesn't exist because Germany is the stand up. Germany is the most powerful, most financially stable country in the eurozone. They're the ones that are—they're really, you know, and there's some others that are okay, but they're the biggest that's strong. So it's just like every other one of these countries is pegged to the mark by being in the euro together. As soon as they decouple, it's just like they're—it's just like it's just like Argentina being pegged to the dollar. And leaving being pegged to the dollar, if Greece goes back to the drop, it's just like they unpegged from the mark, basically. And when that happens, that's when the whole thing comes apart. Why won't it happen? Because the banks will cave in on themselves. Why will the banks, come hell or high water, be recapitalized? Because the elites, the financial elites, want a global currency. And if nothing else, they want several regional currencies. And the euro is their baby. They can't lose the euro. If the euro fails, the whole concept of ever creating a regional-style currency is, is set back 100, 150 years. Well, that didn't work. They have, in their minds, they have got to save it. So they will pour money in. And I'll tell you when the Federal Reserve of the United States will open up the backdoor lending, just like they pumped $16 trillion in. $16 trillion already. it already happened. Watch the video. I'll put the video up for you again today. The $100 million penny. Watch that video if you've never watched it before. And learn the truth about whatever, what already happened. Neither one of the candidates can stand up right now and say, let's, let's fix this. Because either one does it. It is a political death sentence. In November, after the election's over... Doesn't matter who wins, the Fed opens the faucet because it's four years before you have to worry about it again. Right now, and this is the other magician illusion, pay attention to my left hand while I pull a quarter out of your ear with my right hand thing going on. The candidates love Europe in crisis. They love it because they have something to blame for everything that goes wrong, that's out of their control, it's over there, it's not here, and it hides how screwed we are in this country. At least we're not, hey, look at, look at Greece. Look at people jumping their kids in the streets, like that never happens here, right? Come on. Right? So it's it's a great giant misdirection. And the only way, the only way it will ever come down will be when the individual nations decide they're tired with the experiment and choose to exit the euro. That's when it will happen. It will not happen before then. There will be a backdoor deal. There will be money pumped into the institutions. There will be accounting tricks. There will be anything done to save it. The only thing that can stand against it is individual national sovereignty. And do the people in Europe still have it in them to stand up to it? I think they do. I think they will. And I think when it does come down, it is going to blow. It is going to suck. And it will suck here, too. But I think it's part of fixing the problem. For nations to be in control of their own currency, if a nation doesn't control its own money, it does not have sovereignty. Please remember that. Please, that is an important lesson for us to learn. Let's take another one. Right, going on to the next one, this one comes to me from David. David says, uh, "I, I want to tell you what he says yet. I want to ask you a question, and, and, and David has the right answer to this question. By the way, he, he sent this to me kind of like in an ironic." You know, said he had to pick himself on the floor uh, when he read the headline. But here's what I want to ask you. Can something be absolutely true and a complete load of bullshit at the same time? I, I think it can. I think it can. And maybe you'll understand what I'm talking about after I read this to you. Um, U.S. debt load falling at the fastest pace since the 1950s. I'm going to tell you how it was bullshit then when I get done telling you how it's bullshit now. And then you'll understand how something can be true and bullshit at the same time. This is on Yahoo Finance. It's off of MarketWatch. And it's by Rex Nutting. And I think Rex Nutting is a freaking nutter. But let's just read what he has to say. Washington Market Watch. Everyone knows America has too much debt. What they don't know is that the things are getting better, not worse. Little by a little, our economy is reducing its debt burden, slowly preparing the damage caused by 10, 20, or 30 years of excess. 10, 20, or 30 years? Try 100 years, folks. If you want to know why economic growth has been so tepid, here's your answer. Four years after the storm hit, the economy is still deleveraging, and it's very hard for any economy to grow when everyone is focused on increasing their savings. Hmm, where have we heard that before? Total domestic, public, and private debt as a share of the economy has declined for 12 quarters in a row after surging over the previous decade. The rapid rise in federal debt over the past four years has distracted us from the big picture. The level of public debt is indeed worrisome, but it's not as big a worry as the economy's total level of debt, public and private. Although we have a whole cottage industry devoted to warning us about the dangers of too much public debt, we don't have any comparable ca- Cassandras, whatever that's about, telling us about the dangers of too much private debt. Yet the history of the past 30 years, or 300, he's a little closer there, clearly shows how, how that too much debt of whatever variety can pose a systemic risk to the national and global economies. As much as we hear politicians, pundits, Tea Party patriots, and Congressional Budget Office obsessing about government debt, it was excessive private debt, not public debt, that caused the 2008 financial meltdown. And it was private debt, some of it some of it since transferred to the public, that lies behind the current European debt crisis. Greece is unique in having a public sector that ran up spending while the private sector is rather conservative. And you can read the rest if you want to. But basically what he's saying is, hey... The, the, the government's debt isn't the problem because the government can print money. The government can always pay its bills and just print some more, just make some more, right? It's not a problem. It's you and me that were stupid and borrowed too much money. So don't worry because the private debt is going in a decline while the public debt is growing, okay? So it's true. The total debt load then declines. It doesn't mean a damn thing for the country paying its bills. It doesn't mean a damn thing for devaluing the money. All it does is make the money less and less. And then let's examine why the private sector's debt is in decline. Let's figure out why. Okay, let's, let's, let's just think about this. In 2009, was it easier or harder to get a loan? Should I play Jeopardy music? Do you need the whole thing, or can you answer that one pretty quick? Was it harder in 2009 or easier in 2009 to get a loan than, let's say, it was in 2007? So part of why people have less debt is because they can't borrow as much money. That's one thing. The next thing, is it easier or harder to get a loan when you don't have a job? Do you need the Jeopardy music or can can you answer that one pretty good? When you're unemployed, is it harder to get a loan or is it easier to get a loan? So are there more people employed today or less people employed than 2007? That would be less. That would be less. Yes, so the unemployment rate has gone up higher than they even admit. Okay, so there's less people can borrow money because tighter credit restrictions and less people are employed. That doesn't mean that all of them are truly increasing their savings, does it? It just means they're borrowing less because there's less to borrow. Let me bounce this one off of you two. When a person doesn't pay their mortgage and walks away and eventually in a bankruptcy uh, hearing is told you're done. You've, You've done what you can. You've restituted as much as you can and you can go away and you're free and clear. What happens to that loan? Is it still considered debt or is it dissolved? It is dissolved. So. Were there more or less bankruptcies from 2008 to 2011 than let's say 2004 through 2007, more or less? Which one do you think it is? So, so how does that affect the overall debt rating? And then the thing that he says here is though it does like it's it's inconsequential, which is actually a huge problem is how much of the debt that was defaulted on went from the private sector to the public sector? How much of the money went out in bailouts and and, and things like that? Lots of it. How much money went out to the entire rest of the world to bail this crap out as loans due back that are never going to be repaid? $16 trillion dollars. More money than actually exists. So wh- this is a ec- perfect example of something being completely true and total bullshit at the same time. The country is not stronger. The savings really haven't increased that much because most of the le- debt that's been deleveraged has been dissolved or simply as new debt that can't be acquired. People are staying in their homes longer, not because they really want to, because they can't afford to buy a new one, or they can't get a loan to buy a new one. There's people right now sitting on a 7% interest rate, never missed a mortgage payment, never missed a mortgage payment, but they lost a job in the middle of this. They got a new job. They lost that one. They got a new one. They they are the perfect person to loan money to because they've demonstrated, I won't run away. I'll pay my bills. I have on. and they're sitting on a 6 7% interest rate right now. And you can get like 3.8, 3.9% interest. It's insane. And they can't refinance their mortgage. Where Deadbeats had their mortgage refinanced at gunpoint by the government. Telling them, you will do this. And a lot of that didn't even get done. The government said, you will do this. And the Lending Institution said, thanks for the money. No, we won't. I mean, this article is complete crap. Because it makes it sound like the situation's getting better. It's not getting better. It's getting far worse. In the U.S., here we go. There's a little excerpt from it. In the U.S., household debt has now fallen from 84% of GDP to 84% of GDP from a peak of 98%. So 84% of our gross domestic product is directly related to debt. But it used to be 98%. Those numbers aren't even right. Those numbers aren't even right because it doesn't leave... (laughs) That means there's no GDP other than debt in the Federal Reserve. Because the Federal Reserve, it was 16% of our GDP. And I'm not really a a real smart guy or nothing, but I can add 84 and 16. That would be 100%. Right? And the Federal Reserve used to be about 6%, and 98 and 6 is 104% of our GDP. So... I don't know how they're working those numbers out. They must mean the total debt, not the total amount of money paid back against the debt per year. And maybe they can make those numbers work. But this—if you've got 84% of your economy is from debt held by private individuals, you have no real value, and you have—that means you have 16% or less equity in your nation. This is better. This is ugh, come on. Who who is dumb enough to believe crap like this? I'll tell you what this is. This is one of these little sound bites that's supposedly going to help get the current ass clown reelected. That's what I think it's designed to do. You know, hey, look, uh, his spending isn't that bad. We'll just take out like $2.5 trillion worth of his spending and blame it on Bush and then say his spending is lower than any other president since Eisenhower. And then we'll say the debt's falling even though we just moved the debt. Oh, I promise to tell you how the 1950s, this is the same thing in reverse. In the 1950s, we were told that government spending rapidly decreased and the country began to pay off its debt and got on foreign financial ground, and this led to immense prosperity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. All, all the government did was take a momentary break after World War II because the, the, the employment of the government was so huge at that point. All these veterans came home and needed something to do, so they put some of them to work on the highway, some of them went to college, what have you. So, in that kind of scenario, and there's never been. A a ramp-up of industrial output funded by a government like World War II, and there there likely never will be again when you look at it from a standstill to what it went to to what it came down from. So there had to be a drop there. But the, the borrowing never stopped, right? The 50s was the golden age of everybody getting a credit card, everybody getting a mortgage, and everybody getting a car loan. You know, it was the golden age when Lee Iacocca came out with the It was like the 40-40 plan or something like that. 40 payments of $40 to buy any car on the lot. It was something similar to that when he was still with Ford, right? So that was the golden age of consumer debt coming. So every single penny that the government quit borrowing, the public started borrowing. And then basically when it leveled out, they both took off and kept going and growing. And that's all that's going on here. The private sector is deleveraging, the government's picking up the balance, and the hope is that eventually when the two level out, they'll both take off and spend even more. They actually want this. This is their plan. So this article is just complete crap, and now you know why. Uh, Another guy emailed in, and he asked me about food plots with deer. And uh, he wanted to know why. Um, So many times when people set up food plots and things like that, that uh, And this person's name was Jason. I'll just read his actual question to you. Jack, people creating food plots for deer management and hunting seem to be very heavy into using Roundup chemical fertilizers and tilling. Could you talk about some alternative options for creating food plots that are not as damaging to the earth using your knowledge of permaculture? I could probably do a whole show on this. But listen, I always want, when I see a problem, I always want to figure out what the cause of the problem is first, because if we address the cause, we actually fix the problem. If we just say, well, here's another way to do it. It's like giving somebody with a headache an aspirin. Let me tell you something about an, a headache. No headache has ever been caused by a deficiency in aspirin. Your body is not deficient in aspirin when you have a headache. Aspirin addresses the symptom. And sometimes it's a reasonable step to take. But if you want to fix the problem, you have to find out, why am I getting headaches in the first place, and address the cause. So what's the cause of Roundup? tilling and fertilizer being used to plant a a plot for deer that's primarily made up of clover. Clover being a nitrogen fixer needs very little fertilizer in the first place and the food plots with a heavy clover base should actually be improving the land versus damaging the land. Why is it done this way? It's done this way for two reasons. One, many times these food plots are being established where other things are growing and the people establishing them don't know how to establish them so that they can get rid of what's already there. And and the answer to doing that is they probably don't need to get rid of what's already there. Or there's some other ways to do it that I'll get to in a minute. So that's one problem. So it's not like they have a great big field of dirt to start out with. Usually it's some guy with a deer lease. He's got this, this scavenged ground, especially if they're out in Texas somewhere. It doesn't rain a lot. They're just trying to get this thing going with some kind of weird irrigation that they have you know, off of a stock tank or something. And it has one little quarter acre or whatever. And it's got all this thistle and other crap growing in it. And I, they don't know how to deal with it. But the bigger problem, if you want to know what, what causes the whole problem, go down to your sporting goods store or your Walmart or whatever and go find a bag a food plot cover mix or, or something like that, and read the back of it. It will tell you to till the soil. It will tell you to add fertilizer. And it will tell you to kill the existing vegetation first with some type of you know defoliant-like Roundup. So the, the people doing this, the reason they're doing it is because most of them just want a place for deer to be able to come feed. And like most products that they use, they pick the product up, they read the instructions, and they follow them. So, of course, that's what they do. Alright? right? So that's the problem. The problem is that's the instruction sheet. And the reason that's the instruction sheet is most of these people selling these cover crop mixes today, they're not farmers. They're they're not in agriculture. They don't know anything. They're not even conventional agriculturists. They're people like Mossy Oak that sell camouflage clothing. They realize, I can put my brand on this, and people will buy it because of my brand. So they don't know what they're doing either. So they turn to mainstream agriculture and say I want to grow uh, basically a pasture, but instead of putting sheep or goats or your cattle on it, I want it to be out there for deer. And they ask mainstream ag- agriculture, how do I do this? And they say, well, you spray it with Roundup, you disk it, you know, you turn everything over, and then you sow this stuff out, you got to throw a little fertilizer on there, and you irrigate it, and there you go. <laughs> well, this is this is this is where it comes from. So how how do we fix this? Well, one thing we could do It's very early in the spring, when everything's just turned green, go out and roll it down. Don't disc it. Just roll it flat and then overseed it. And that'll basically turn the existing vegetation. When you roll it flat, right, you'll break the stem, but it'll slowly degrade. It'll basically turn it into a mulch mat. So basically what you would actually do is you would seed it first and then roll the existing vegetation flat like a mulch layer. And then it'll take over from there. And it'll get well established in the spring rains. And you might have to give it some irrigation. It all depends on where you're at, how much rain you get. Do you have any earthworks going on or things like that? But but that's it. It certainly doesn't need fertilizer. What it probably needs is to be inoculated. And that's another thing that generally I've found in these seed mixes. They've got crimson clover, red clover, dutch white clover, all these different clovers, maybe some alfalfas. There's northern mixes and southern mixes with non-dormant and dormant alfalfas mixed into it and all these other legumes. But they're not inoculated. There's no, there's no bacterial inoculation to start the symbiotic process where the legumes can put nitrogen in the soil. So there's your solution. Inoculation with the proper inoculants. Mowing the existing, not mowing the existing vegetation, but rolling it flat. You get a big, flat, heavy freaking uh, plate of steel and a four wheeler. And instead of disking it, you have to do this when it's wet, right? You've got to put your seed down before the rains, before the rains are finished for the year. Probably about 20 to 30% through the cycle. You want your existing vegetation to be up about 6 to 8 inches. Seed it, flatten it. Let the rains take over. It'll establish. Will there be other things in there? Yes. Guess what the freaking deer are eating right now. Those things. So you're adding to, not trying. So this is basic, basic stuff. If you want mostly clover, overseed the clover. Seed twice or three times as much what's recommended. And you're probably better off putting your own mixes together based on your own region and based on the, the the needs that the deer have, then buying these premixes, or buy the premix, but read what's in there and determine, okay, of these things, these are the things I really want lots of, and then go buy another ten or twenty pounds of those two or three different seeds, put that whole mix together, and put that out there, right? But the reason the problem exists is because what the instructions say to do. The guys doing it aren't bad guys. They just don't they, they don't know any better. So that's how I would establish a food plot. So back to the economy. I've been saying for a long time that municipal defaults are coming, and before that they would, before the, these municipalities and cities and whatever would default on their bonds, they would begin austerity measures and start cutting pensions, and that this would actually start in the most Democrat, socialized places, the places where nobody, the most union-controlled, union-run government-run, largest government sector crap out there would be the first ones to fall, and that they would go cut the pensions they promised never to cut. And some people think I'm crazy for it. Uh, let me read a little article to you from the American Interest. This is called The Blue Mutiny. Providence cuts pensions to stay afloat. Much of the country is watching the Democrats' attempt to save the blue model in Wisconsin, it, Wisconsin's recall election today, which, by the way, failed. Uh, but in Providence, Rhode Island, it's the Democrats themselves who are taking on Big Blue. Mayor Angel Traveras proposed d- proposed deal to modify the pensions of government workers in order to save the city from bankruptcy, follows up an earlier mandate, and is currently under consideration by union leaders. The deal would cap future pensions, permanently dissolve the annual increases traditionally allotted to public workers, such as police and firefighters. So what they're going to say is, if you're currently getting a pension, From uh, Providence, Rhode Island, whatever you're getting is what you're getting, and it will never go up again. No more cost of living increases. Capped. Done. And the automatic raises that were in there are also out the window, which seems like only a government bureaucracy would come up with something like this. If you cap the pensions, doesn't that... uh, Oh, I see. It's capping future pensions. So they're basically going to say in the future a pension can only be this big. So they're cut. <laughs> great. They're cutting the wages of future retirees and safeguarding the existing the existing wages of current retirees with a cap. So they're the cap the future and stop the raises of the current. But basically they're cutting pensions. So you can read the rest of the article if you want to, but here it is, exactly the way that I said it would play out. Now, here's what people just don't understand. It's only putting a finger in the hole in the dam, and there's there's leaks everywhere. It's not enough. All it does is delay. And that's the government model. Delay, 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 delay. Europe's model, delay, and no one's talking about this, no one's saying this, but this is the model. Delay at all costs until November, and the Federal Reserve of the United States will, will, will get involved. Just hold out till November, and they won't even do it publicly, but they can't even risk doing it backdoor right now. In November, December of this year, the Federal Reserve will pump trillions of dollars, if necessary, into Europe. They will not give it to the governments. They will pump it into their banking system and recapitalize their banks. And how much will they put in? Every penny it takes until the banks are fully recapitalized. That's what they're going to do. Over here in America, it's it'll get better if we can just just prevent it from happening now. Now keep in mind, this freaking tool, this Angel Traveres, is the same guy that just a couple months ago I covered. Because a consultant um, to their city said that there was no way that Providence would, would, would avoid bankruptcy. Sooner or later, Providence is going to have to go into bankruptcy. And he fired them for speaking the truth. Right, So now what he's trying to do is say, look, I, I told you we're not going to go bankrupt. Right, So what is the definition of bankruptcy when you can no longer pay your bills? So one way to stop bankruptcy from occurring is to stop having so many bills. But instead of meaningful cuts, instead of let's look at everything the city's doing and say are there some things we just shouldn't be doing, the cuts come first from the, the actual obligations. In other words, Providence is under no obligation to do a lot of the things that they do such as i don't know how many how many police officers they have on the street do they need as many as they have probably not do they have a lot of problems with crime in certain parts of providence yeah but do they need as many of them that are out there just writing tickets probably not but that's their source of money for now so but we're not going to we're not going to scale that back or do they need to have the level of enforcement of code in, in in things like that where they go out and harass citizens and say, you know, your freaking, your, uh, your, your overhang is too far out of your house or you have too many windows on this. Like, do, they, do they need to do that shit? And the answer is no, but they won't cut that. They'll take the guy that did that for 30 years and they'll cut his pension, but they won't cut back on doing it in the first place. And, then, and I, if I wanted to go in and audit Providence's books, I'm sure I could find many things like that. But my point is simple here. You can debate the politics all you want. The, the numbers don't work. And the damn city's going bankrupt. And it's just it's just one more. Because Stockton, California is probably going to be the next one to go bankrupt. I'll, I'll put a link in today's show notes for this as well. Do you know that Stockton, California? Listen to this. This is this is freaking in a way it's hysterical, and in another way it's sad. The the city of Stockton, uh of, of Stockton, California had a new has a city hall building. Wells Fargo repossessed the City Hall building. Let me say this again. Stockton, California had Wells Fargo come in and foreclose on City Hall. Now, City Hall still exists, but the building is. It, it, Wells Fargo owns the building now. They've taken it. Let me read a little bit of this to you. Uh, Stockton, California, population 292,000 to the list of cities bankrupted because of bad management, overgenerous public union wages and benefits. Please consider new Stockton City Hall building seized by Wells Fargo, City Prep's bankruptcy contingency plan. The Stockton City Council announced Wednesday that they will look at bankruptcy contingency plans after Wells Fargo seized the new City Hall building. The city paid $35 million to buy the eight-story building but was not able to move in because of its money problems and recently stopped making debt payments altogether. This is the fourth building that was repossessed by Wells Fargo. The bank seized three city parking garages for the same reason. So the city spent $35 million it didn't have to buy a building it couldn't even afford to move into. Please think about this, guys. This is how bad things are with our municipal governments. This is why I say screw the federal politics and let's start taking our cities and our towns and our counties back because we're just as bad at the local level, maybe worse. They bought a building they couldn't afford with money they didn't have and ceased making payments on it because they didn't have enough money to fund moving into the building that they didn't have enough money to buy in the first place. The, the, I mean, come on! And if you think there's no economic crisis on the horizon, and you look at things like this and you still say that, I don't know where you're coming from. So look this one up today, too. Okay, I need a couple better questions to finish the day on, so... I dug out a couple that have nothing to do with economics and nothing to do with all of this crap and, and, and bad bad stuff uh, happening to us with nutritionally or government oppression. I just want some stuff that we can end today on with a kind of a positive, what can we do for ourselves note. So the first of those comes from uh, Jason in Minnesota. Jason says, um, I was looking at buying a Marlin Model 60, but everyone keeps telling me to get the 10-22 for the accessories. I don't plan on modding my 22 to look tactical, and I've read out of the box the Marlin is more accurate. What are your thoughts? Um, they're they're both very very accurate guns um, for their limitations and what they are. the The 22 long rifle is 100 yards and under cartridge, and it excels out to about 50 yards. That's its that's its sweet spot. Is you know 15 to 50 yards, small game rifle, good to 100, solid. You know, good to 100, solid at 75, but that 50 to 15 yard sweet spot is what it's all about so with that and with the type of animals that you're going to shoot with a 22 if you can't hit a squirrel in the head at 40 yards out of a tree it ain't because you bought the Ruger versus the Marlin so from an accuracy standpoint buy the one you like better from an accessory standpoint yes there's so much more for the Ruger than there is for the Marlin though there's some stuff for the Marlin but I'm with you I'm not big on accessorizing 22s I want it to be a nice hunting rifle Um, I own a 1022, I own an old Marlin 25 bolt action, and I own a Marlin Model 60. So I own just about everything you could own in that, that kind of price point world. The 1022 is a much nicer rifle to shoot. It it just is. And mine's with the, you know, custom checkered walnut stock and all, so it's, it's not a rack grade rifle. It's, it's, it's a black walnut stock, checkered, uh, nice sling on it, uh, nice little, uh, uh, one and a half to seven powers, uh, Simmons scope on it, uh, and, and I like it a lot. The 60 is fun. The big advantage for the 10.22 is it's magazine fed, so you can reload much quicker. You can carry a lot of ammo already ready to go. Ten round rotary magazines that fit flush. I like that over the the, uh, the magazine fed Marlins because those tend to dig into your back because they protrude from the bottom. So, if you want a magazine fed rifle the the ten twenty two is about the best thing in the in that price point in that world that there's available to you a very very good uh rifle and what I like about it is like I have a sling that holds a, a magazine, so if I go out squirrel hunting, twenty rounds is plenty it really is if you can get it done with twenty target shooting it 's five minutes right but for for hunting squirrels for a day, twenty rounds, maybe even thirty rounds. You know, So you can throw a, a box of shells in, uh, in your, your pack or whatever, you know, 50 doesn't take up much space, but you can have 20 of them, one magazine in the weapon, one magazine on the, on the sling, and you can spend a day out chasing rabbits and squirrels and stuff like that and, and probably never have to feed a single round into the magazine. And, and that's kind of convenient as well. The Marlin has a, a, a tubular magazine. And you pull this plunger out, and you have to sit there and load them in there one at a time. That said, it holds, I think, like 18. So you, you've got as, once you've loaded it, you've got as many in there damn near as you got with two magazines in the Ruger without having to reload. So that kind of settles it off. The, 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 the Model 60 is a little bit lighter. Um, it's, they're both very reliable. I have to say I've had more malfunctions from Ruger's than I have from the Marlon Model 60. If you pick the Model 60, you're in good company. It is the most popular rifle in the world. There's been more Model 60 Marlins sold than any other model of rifle in the world, and I believe the second most sold rifle in the world is the 10-22. So you're in a place where you can't go wrong. Um, The the Model 60 will set you back a little bit less. Um, So I would say, if, if at all possible... Borrow one, borrow a couple from friends, you know, or go shoot with people that have them. Shoot both of them. Decide which one you like more and buy either one. And, uh, let me read the second question he has. If you were gonna round out your arsenal with a battle rifle, would you choose an AR-15, AK-47, or SKS if you were on a budget and why? Okay, first of all, I don't refer to any of my rifles as battle rifles, and I think if you do, you're in the wrong mental dental state, and you think someday you're going to go out and fight Red Dawn, so get your get your head out of your ass with that, please. The whole main battle rifle thing, it just, I, I, I don't know who you guys think you are. I don't know what you think you're going to do, but whatever it is, you're probably wrong. Out of the three, I prefer the AR-15. I like AKs, but I prefer the AR. I own a couple ARs, I own no AKs. That tells you something. I do own some SKs. They're affordable. I think that that's another example of personal preference. People say, well, I can take an AK and dip it in the mud. And, well, don't dip your freaking gun in the mud. I'm just saying. Uh, now, if you're out in the field in a muddy environment, the AK is a more reliable weapon. It, it's it's absolutely the case. The AR is a more accurate weapon with greater range. So it's it's always with guns that you're choosing based on your situation. If I was on a budget... And I just wanted a semi-auto rifle, and I was on a real budget. It's hard to beat the SKs because they're cheap and they they're reliable and they function. And yeah, they're you know, stripper clip fed, but you can pump you know you can pump a, a full clip into them really really quick. Um, so I mean, if you're on a budget, that's where I would go. If you're going to spend the money to buy an AR and AK, yes, you can get into AKs for less than ARs, but you start to split hairs. When you, when you get any type of real quality behind things and any level of accessory, accessorization, and and I personally lead to the, lean to the AR-15. If somebody wants an AK-47, I have absolutely not one negative thing to say about it though. And I completely understand why they make their choice. So I, I, I I think that's like the 308 versus the 3006. It's all about what you want and what you like because in, in the real world, when you get shot, it sucks. And if you get shot in the chest with either one, you've got a real problem. It just made your day a whole lot worse. And the actual civilian use of these type of weapons is far more likely to be home defense than Red Dawn Two, okay? And it just is. And, and we, if we're gonna if we're gonna be taken seriously by other people, we need to be serious about our own conversations and stop using terms like bat- "at least he didn't use main battle rifle," but the guys with that. And I know some of you are pissed at me right now, and I'm sorry. I'm just speaking my mind here. And if, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and you can call it whatever you want to. But I, I do think you're playing out scenarios in your head that are just not very likely. It's more likely you have to deal with looters. Uh, it's more likely to deal with civil breakdown like Argentina is, with people robbing and stealing, small armed gangs, things like that. Uh, then you're going to go out and, 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 you know, be in the militia. Right? It just, and you're going to fight the Second Civil War, whatever it is in your head. It's just not realistic. I'm sorry. Let's uh, take one more. Do a nice gardening question to wrap today up so that I feel good about today when I finish. Uh, Jack, I'm new to gardening. I have two flower bed areas. I'd like to convert to grow veg- veggies and possibly miniature fruit trees. One area is about 134 square feet. The other one, 59 square feet, separated by a small concrete walkway. I'm trying to get all the decorative rock out and then plan to make soil usable. Right now, it's basically just clay. Clay is good. It holds water, by the way. First question: Should I mix peat and compost to start with? Second question: Once I get it finished, will it likely be? Cl- it will be likely close to winter, so should I just throw mulch over it all, or plant some type of winter ground cover? Uh, and your answer, keep in mind, I'm in suburbia, and there, they are, these are in the front of the house, so it lo- I likely won't want anything too large. If you say ground cover, uh, okay, I would ideally tell you to plant something like radish, oilseed radish. Or mustard, which will get four or five foot tall, um, but you don't have to let it get that tall. You can you can keep cutting it as it grows. Uh, or is, what what you're gonna want here is something with a deep taproot, maybe daikon radish or something for a winter cover crop. Find something with a long tap root. Do not till the soil. Do not till the soil. Um, here's what I'm gonna tell you. You say it's clay and it's compacted and all. I guarantee you. That if you just drive down your road until you get outside of the main suburban area not even the main suburban area but outside of like the, 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 the neighborhood you're going to see undeveloped woodlots and on those woodlots are going to be great big trees and if you go in there and pull the leaf cover off the ground and look down you're going to go God, that's beautiful soil you're gonna, if you start digging in it a little bit you'll find it all crumbly and structured and little creatures living living in it it's the same dirt under your house It's the same dirt. It's the same land. It's only down the road. What's the difference? It's covered in mulch. If nothing else, just mulch the hell out of it. Lay down about, if you don't want to do any kind of cover crop, and let's see, winter cover crop, what could we do with a winter cover crop that wouldn't be too too big, too weedy-like during the winter when everything's kind of sparse. You could probably get away with like Austrian winter pea or something like that, and that will help improve the soil. So maybe we lay down, just scatter whatever cover crop you're going to do. Put two inches of compost on top of it. Put about two inches of soft mulch, not wood, something something soft like straw mulch, uh, about three or four inches of that. And your cover crop will grow right up through that. And, and what you can do is kind of lay down about an inch of it, really, really loose. And as the cover crop gets to the top of it, just keep laying it on there really, really loose. And it will continue to pack down. And your crop will continue to find its way up through it. And get it about three inches, three inches deep of straw mulch with some sort of a cover crop there. And you can always plant, if you can get it in the ground fast enough, you can plant something like buckwheat. Right? And get it it's like, because it only needs six weeks. So if you can get at least six weeks back from your first frost date and you can get this done, you can plant buckwheat, it'll only grow in that unprepared soil. It'll only grow, let's say, maybe a foot tall. It'll be pretty. It'll have little white flowers on it and all. And as it's getting ready to go to seed, before it goes to seed, cut it down and lay it down and put mulch on top of it. That'll get a root bed down there of something. If you do that by spring, when you pull that back, it won't look like it does now. It won't be hard-packed clay. There'll be all kinds of life down there tilling the soil for you. And all you need to do then is whatever you're going to plant into it, leave your mulch in place, possibly bring in some drip irrigation, water the damn thing whenever you go more than a couple of weeks in the winter without rain. Keep it wet and humid and moist under there. Pull back the mulch just enough and add more mulch in the spring and plant your stuff in. I don't care if you have to hack at it. If it's still tight in some areas, get stuff planted in or just keep mulching it and it'll take care of itself. If you till it, you're just starting the cycle that you're going to have to do it every year. If you'll take the approach I'm giving you, you know, in and, and an ideal situation, I would plant this thing with deep drilling tap roots like oilseed radish and mustard. And that is going to probably not work for you um, in, in a front yard in suburbia. But that would be perfect. But you can get there, it'll just, you won't have those big long tap roots going down there. Now, what will do that? Dandelion. You know, dandelion has that kind of a root structure. Comfrey has that kind of a root structure. You'd want that there permanently anyway. So you get some comfrey root cuttings and go ahead and plant that right up front. Just plant it where you're going to want it to always be. And then you'll be able to do things like when you go to plant your tomato plant next year, you reach over, you pull about five ten leaves off your comfrey, you smash it up, you stick it in the hole, and you plant your tomato on top of it, and then there's your potassium right you got you got a great fertilizer sitting in your own garden so that's kind of the approach that i would take i wouldn't till it i'm done tilling soil i'm done to the only time i'm putting a shovel in the ground anymore is if i'm building a raised bed or building a swale and i've got to take the earth out to put it up on top of somewhere else and i'm going to do that one time and that's it there's no more soil tilling for me all we need to do is mulch and let the creatures till the soil When the little creatures till your soil, you get crumbly, structured soil, right? Because that's how they work. They work in minutia. They work in miniature. When you till the soil, you turn a big old shovel over, you get clumps and chunks. And you destroy the soil life. So it's not there to break it down for you. And by the time it builds itself back up a little bit, and it's just ready to start doing the job for you again, you till it again, kill it again. And yet you get great results. Because when you kill things... You grow on their dead bodies. Well, it's okay to grow on the dead bodies of microbes and earthworms and insects and things like that. But in their timeline, not the accelerated timeline the tilling takes. So that's the approach I would take. If nothing else, just mulch the crap out of it this winter and plant into it in the uh, in the spring. I think you'll be surprised. But if you can get something growing in the winter in there to start putting a root bed down. And at some point before you plant, go in there and cut it and mulch it back down to the soil again. And, and let those roots die off and create what you would call a fast carbon pathway you'll get much better results than if you just mulch it but mulching will work mulching will definitely work for you and with that I do have things wrapped up today hopefully it's been an interesting episode with a lot to think about we went about an hour and 20 minutes today tomorrow I'll have uh, something new different and interesting for you and with that this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't it's in our food on our TVs sometimes we forget we are what we eat I don't know the answer it's like there's nothing I can do it's the price we pay I guess when we follow our